how should Christians think about sin? That is the primary question that Paul is dealing with in this passage. And he's going to come at the answer to that question from two different angles. So first he's going to say that a Christian's identity shapes the way they view sin. And then he's going to say that a Christian's design or their purpose shapes the way they view sin. This morning we're going to look at identity, and next week we will cover design. So how should a Christian think about sin? We're going to organize our study this morning under three headings. If you're taking notes, we'll look at the definition of sin, the results of sin, and then the identity of a Christian. So starting with the definition, we have 14 verses here. In 14 verses, Paul uses the word, he writes the word sin 10 times, which is a lot. That means this is what this passage is about. He's talking about sin. That's a major theme. But what exactly is it? If we're going to know how Christians should think about sin, we need to have a good grasp of what it is. The original language in Greek, it's the word hamartia, which is kind of fun to say. It sounds a little bit nicer than sin, <laughs> but it's not a good thing. It's the same thing, hamartia, and it literally means, in the broadest sense, to miss the mark. That's what the Greek word means. Now, Christians, writers of the New Testament, when they use the word sin, they would have meant more than that. In context, it's more specific than that. But at its broadest level, that is the definition. Hamartia is to miss the mark. And I like that definition because the concept of sin is broad. In fact, I think the concept of sin is much more broad than how most people view it. Most people the average person on the street, when they think about sin, what they think about is doing something morally wrong. That's sin. It's an action or a behavior that is morally wrong. And of course, that would fit under our definition. That is sin. That's what we would call a sin of commission. You commit the sin. The first sin ever committed in the history of the world was a sin of commission. You remember the story in Genesis chapter 3? God said it to Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. He said, hey, listen, you have paradise. (laughs) You have the whole garden. You can do whatever you want. You can eat from whatever tree, whatever plant you want. One rule, one command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. So what God did there is he set a standard for moral behavior. He drew a boundary for Adam and Eve. Don't eat from this tree. What did Adam and Eve do? They ate from the tree. (laughs) They did the crime. That's what happened. And that's what most people think of when they think of sin. But sin is actually much more than that. There's also sin of omission. So sin of commission is doing something morally wrong. Sin of omission is not doing something morally right. So in the garden, God draws a boundary. He said, don't do this. But God also requires his creatures to do certain things. There's things he says, don't do this. Don't cross this boundary. But then here's what you ought to do. Give you an illustration. We have a lot of parents here. You parents, if you tell one of your children to go clean their room, say, hey, listen, you got one hour. I'm going to come back in an hour. I want the room to be clean. And they hear the instruction. You look them right in the eye. Clean your room. You got an hour. And it's understood what you mean. 
I want you to pick up your toys, get them put away in their bins or on the shelves. I want you to put all of your clean laundry away. I want you to get the dirty laundry off the floor, into the laundry basket. You need to make your bed. You need to vacuum the floor. Okay, they know this is the expectation. You have one hour, clean your room. You go away, you're doing your own thing. You come back an hour later, and they've made zero attempt to clean their room. This has never happened to me. I've heard about this happening to other people. Now, in that situation, would it matter if they hadn't done anything wrong or bad in that hour? So you come to the child, you say, child, son, daughter, uh, you didn't clean your room. And so now there's going to be a consequence. And they say, whoa, 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 dad, hold on. I didn't do anything bad in the last hour. I didn't hit my siblings. I didn't tell any lies. I didn't steal any candy out of the candy jar. I didn't have a bad attitude. I didn't throw a fit. I didn't do anything wrong. Would that make them innocent? (laughs) Of course not. Of course it wouldn't. They sinned in what they didn't do. Their sin is one of omission, not commission. And I don't have any way to quantify this. I think people more often sin by omission than commission. And we don't even know about it. We don't even realize it because God has a design for our lives and we fall short of it so often. We don't do what he wants us to do. But sin is even more broad than that because God's standards and God's boundaries include way more than just your behavior. This is what Jesus taught in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught that God is first and most concerned, not with your behavior. He cares about that. But he's first and most concerned with your heart, with your thinking, with your mind, your motives. And so you can miss the mark with your actions, certainly. You can also miss the mark with your words. But you can also miss the mark with your attitudes. You ever been around someone who just has a bad attitude? (laughs) And it could take so many different shapes. They're just sour they're bitter, they're complaining, they're grumbly. You can sin with your attitudes. You can miss the mark with your thoughts, just in your thinking. And maybe you have enough self-control that that doesn't even manifest itself in your external attitude. You know, you put on a smile and you work hard, but in your mind, you're thinking terrible thoughts. I hate that person. What a loser. (laughs) Thoughts of judgment, thoughts of lust, thoughts of anger and bitterness thoughts of selfishness and greed. You can miss the mark with your desires, what you want. You can miss the mark in your heart. And so sin, that's what it is. It is missing the mark of God's good design and standard in your heart or with your actions. That's what sin is. And almost always, if you miss the mark with your actions, you've already missed it in your heart. That's like a a byproduct of sin in the heart. This is Jesus' point in Matthew 5. And so when you think about sin in that way, it's not just the really bad stuff. It's not just sex, drugs, theft, murder. That's what a lot of people think of. Sin pervades normal, everyday experience. It's everywhere. Laziness is sin. Pride is sin, being unwilling to listen to other people or be disagreed with. Selfishness is sin. Unforgiveness is sin. Cynicism and pessimism are sin. Poor stewardship of your body or your finances or your time is sin. Worrying is sin. And on and on and on. And my point here is not to call out specific sins. It's to paint a picture to help you see it's everywhere. 
And it's not everywhere out there. It's everywhere right here. Every day, all the time. It is pervasive. We need to know what sin is. That's what it is. Missing the mark of God's good design and standard in your heart or with your actions. Now, what does sin result in? The results of sin. Well, this is in many ways what Paul has been talking about since chapter 1. But he summarizes it really well in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. So sin, we find this out in the beginning of the story, Genesis 3, results in physical death. This is what God says is going to happen. On the day that you eat of it, you will certainly die. And that happened. But sin results in more than just physical death for Adam and Eve. Sin results in a corrupted nature for all human beings who descend from Adam and Eve. This is what Paul says. In this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. So we have inherited a corrupted, sinful nature from our first parents. We are sinful by nature and by choice. Sin further results in condemnation. This is what Paul goes on to say. Verse 18, so then as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. That means sin results in punishment from God. Sin results in spiritual, eternal death. It's devastating. Paul goes on to say this, though. Verse 18, so then as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act. There is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass. That's the sin. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So one of the results of sin is that it, it initiated or it, it brought out, it brought about the redemptive plan of God, which is somewhat ironic Sin results in God's plan of redemption in Christ. Ironically, it is because of sin and death that Jesus came. This is what Paul is saying. And just like one act of disobedience and sin resulted in all of those terrible consequences, it it shattered humanity's relationship with God. It, It turned us from immortal beings created in His image to mortal, destined to die physically enslaved to sin, separated from God forever. Horrible consequences from one act of sin. Paul says Jesus' act of obedience to submit to death on the cross resulted in the reversal of all of those consequences. For anybody who would believe in Him, trust in Him. Paul says if you believe Jesus was the perfect, sinless Son of God and He died on the cross to take the punishment you deserve for your sin, then you're saved. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And Paul's point at the end of chapter 5, it's a very complicated 
logical sequence. But I think if you step back and you look at what is the overall picture he's trying to paint, the overall picture that Paul is trying to paint in Romans 5 is that God's love and God's grace offered in Jesus is overwhelming. It just overpowers. It's like a, like a flood, like a tidal wave that just consumes sin and guilt and death and all of those consequences. For those who put their faith in Jesus, there's no condemnation. There's justification. There's no guilt. There's only innocence. There's no death. There's eternal life. There's no rejection by God. There's complete acceptance by God as your heavenly Father. And Paul says, you will reign with Him. <laughs> I don't know exactly what that means, but that's wild. You will reign with your heavenly Father who is the King of the universe in righteousness forever if you're in Christ. That's the picture. That's the gospel. Jesus died to save you from your sin with all of its consequences. That's the good news. Now, in that good news, there is a tension point. I don't know if you've noticed it. It's a tension point that is in all of Paul's presentation of the gospel in Romans and even in other New Testament letters. And it was a tension point that his religious opponents liked to highlight. Paul highlights it for them in verse 1. He says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Now, do you see the logic of the question? Here's the logic. If the law led to an increase of sin, which Paul just said that happened, and if sin led to an increase of God's grace, which Paul says it did, then more sin logically leads to more grace. More sin leads to more forgiveness, more grace. Now, is that true? Yes, it is. That is true. That's exactly what Paul's just been saying. In one sense, it's true. So then the question becomes, should Christians intentionally sin more so that God's grace is expanded? More sin, more grace. That's the question that Paul's opponents are asking. And you need to understand that this is not an honest question. This is what's called a rhetorical question. So the question is designed to make a point, not actually be answered. And Paul's Jewish opponents especially, they believed in works-based righteousness. So what they thought is you, in order to be righteous, in order to be made right with God, in order for your sins to be taken care of, atoned for, you have to work. You do it. You follow all of the rules in the law. You meet the law's demands on your own by your effort. That's how you're righteous. That's how you're justified. Works-based salvation. And their point, so these Jewish opponents of Paul who believed in works-based salvation, their point with this rhetorical question is that Paul's gospel actually encouraged anybody who believed it to sin more. They viewed the Christian life as a lawless life. Their accusation was, if, you, if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, if justification is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, then you can indulge all your sinful desires freely in this life without any fear of punishment 
in the next life. That was their criticism. And I think many Christians, or at least people who claim to believe in Jesus today in our culture, actually believe this. They might not articulate it that way. But, but I think this is a belief that pervades Christian culture in America. People view grace as a get-out-of-jail-free card. I can do whatever I want. I can sin as much as I want, but my ticket is punched. Because I love Jesus. He died on the cross for me. I prayed one time, asked him into my heart. Hallelujah. Now notice, Paul's going to rebut this point. But he's not, he's, he's not rebutting this point to Christians. There's no Christians who believe this. This was an accusation of non-Christians, Jews, who didn't like Jesus, they didn't believe in Jesus, and this was a criticism. They're saying Christianity could lead to this type of thinking and this type of living. So is it true that a Christian can indulge all their sinful desires freely in this life without any fear of punishment in the next life? Survey says, verse 2, no. <laughs> and he couldn't say it any stronger. Absolutely not. Exclamation point. It's not true. Okay, why? Why, Paul? Seems like a pretty logical case that's been made. Why is it not true that Christians can just sin as much as they want and not worry about it? Well, it's, Paul's going to say it's because the identity of a Christian it's because of what a Christian is, who a Christian fundamentally is. He outlines several characteristics of Christians that utterly contradict a life given over to sin. First, Paul says a Christian is someone who died to sin. That's what it means to be a Christian. Verse 2, he goes on to say, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now we're going to figure out what Paul means by we who died to sin, but before we do, what's obvious is that he's saying this is a definitional problem. It's a contradiction in terms. A Christian willfully living in sin on purpose over time is a contradiction in terms. It'd be like if I said, I am a married bachelor. That's what I am. It doesn't even make sense. Like that's not something that exists. Because definitionally to be married means you are not a bachelor. And definitionally to be a bachelor means you are not married. It's a contradiction in terms. And so what Paul says is a Christian is someone who has died to sin. That's what it means, part of what it means to be a Christian. Now, what does it mean that they've died to sin? Well, first, what it doesn't mean. A lot of people say that what this means is once you become a Christian, you're born again, you're justified, sins are forgiven, that you will never be tempted to sin again, or you shouldn't be. And if you're ever tempted to sin, something's wrong. You know, something's wrong with you. You might not be saved. That's obviously not what this is saying. Christian is not someone who will never have a temptation to sin again. Once you're for forgiven, you're justified, you're made righteous in Christ, you will still have sinful desires. You will. Paul talks about this more in chapter 7. And this is why he says in verse 12 of chapter 5, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. A Christian is not someone who never has a desire to sin. There's only one person who's ever lived who didn't have a desire to sin, and that was the Lord Jesus. So that's not what it means. If you had no sinful desires, there'd be no need for the command not to obey sin's desires. It does not mean that a Christian is someone who never sins. 
So not only will you have a desire to sin, Paul assumes, hey, you're going you're to mess up. You're going to sin. This is why he says, do not let sin reign. This assumes that it will be present at times. Your sin is going to rear its ugly head at times. But what he says is, it shouldn't reign. It shouldn't rule. You have to fight it. You have to fight against it. You have to master it in Christ. Sin should not rule in the life of a Christian, even if it's present at times. Instead, God should rule by the power of His Spirit. Paul gets into this later in Romans 8. He says, verse 12, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. The flesh here and the body are synonymous with your sin nature. He says, you live according to the flesh, you're going to die because death is the consequence of sin. But he says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You're going to sin, but you have to fight it. You have to struggle against it. You have to say, I'm not going to let it rule me. It's not going to reign in my life. God will reign in my life. The Holy Spirit will reign in my life. So what does it mean that a Christian is someone who died to sin? Here's my best understanding of what it means. It means a Christian is someone who is dead to sin's ultimate penalty. It's nullified, which is death and condemnation. It means sin has no claim on you, in other words. You are dead to its guilt. You're dead to the eternal punishment it demands. So for an illustration, consider a legal parallel. If someone commits a crime, they're, they're guilty, they're sentenced to 25 years in prison. And then they go to prison for 25 years, they do the time, they get out, they're released, and then life goes on. In that instance, justice is satisfied. Their penalty is paid, and they can go on with their life. So the legal system, the court, has no more claim on that person, at least for that particular crime. And the death penalty actually works the same way. This is part of what Paul's talking about. Except that there's no life after the penalty is paid. And that's our problem before God. The claim that justice has on a person who is sentenced to die is only satisfied after they die. Verse 10 says this about Jesus. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. It's the exact same phrase. He died to sin. So Christians died to sin, according to Paul, because Jesus died to sin. Now, what does it mean that Jesus died to sin? Well, it can't mean that he no longer has a sinful nature because he never had a sinful nature. It can mean that he no longer has sinful desires because Jesus didn't have any sinful desires, even though he was actually tempted in his humanity. But that's different than having a sinful desire. And so when you look at Jesus, it's clear that died to sin means that Jesus satisfied the penalty that sin demands, which is death. But whose sin? Not his sin, because he didn't have any sin. He was the sinless, perfect, eternal son of God. Jesus satisfied the penalty sin demands for you and for me. But unlike you and me, Jesus couldn't be held by death because he is God. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, Just as the Father has life in himself, so too does the Son. That's wild. <laughs> Jesus says, I have life in myself. I'm not dependent. I'm not created. 
He is God himself, and he's innocent and pure. And so his death satisfied the legal demands of sin for everyone who believes in him, and his resurrection inaugurates new life. The grave couldn't hold him. That's what it means that a Christian died to sin. Second, a Christian, Paul says, is someone who's been baptized. Verse 3, or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I want to make the case here that part, part of what is in Paul's brain is that a Christian identifies as someone who has been baptized. So who is all of us who were baptized, according to Paul? Who's he talking about? Well, he's not saying me, Paul, and the other apostles. That's not who he's talking about. He's not saying me and like all the really mature super Christians. That's not who he's talking about. It's Paul, we, and everyone he's writing to. All Christians who are going to read this letter. Most of whom, probably hundreds, he's never even met them. And so what is built into his reasoning here is he assumes they've all been baptized. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that if you haven't been baptized, that that automatically means you're not a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is in the New Testament, Christians get baptized. It's assumed because Jesus commanded it. In Matthew 28, the apostles practiced it. They taught it in Acts chapter 2. It's the first thing Peter says. So the people who believe the gospel, they say, what should we do? He says, repent, believe, and then get baptized. You should be baptized. Paul's writing to probably hundreds, maybe more Christians he's never met. He assumes they've all been baptized. Now, what does Christian baptism have to do with how we think about sin? It has a lot to do with it. This is the point that Paul is making. And it's because of what baptism is and what it means. Baptism is being submerged underwater. That's the Greek word baptizo. Being submerged or immersed underwater. And Christian baptism is an external symbol of an internal reality. It is one of the, it is the inaugurating sign of the new covenant in Christ. And so it's a symbol. It doesn't have any salvific efficacy. It doesn't do anything. It shows something. It's like a wedding ring. So I wear a wedding ring. I've used this analogy many times. Does this make me married? Of course not. Anyone can put a ring on their finger. It doesn't make you married. It is an external symbol of a greater, more significant reality, which is the covenant of my marriage. But it, de- it declares my status as a married man. So it's not unimportant. It is important, but it's a symbol. And baptism symbolically unites you to the death and burial of Jesus. So this is what Paul is saying. When you go under the water, you're communicating a deeper spiritual reality. Paul explains what this is. In verse 6, he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. So here's what that means. When you go under the water, what you're saying is, my sin is gone. Not because of me. Like J- Jesus took it away. His blood, his atonement, his work on the cross. My sin is gone. I've been set free. I'm innocent. I'm cleansed. I'm righteous. I'm forgiven. And even though you're not going to be perfect, 
you set your mind then to turn away from a sinful life. That's what it means to be united with the death and burial of Jesus. I'm done with sin. That's what you're saying. Both its penalty and its demands, its claim. Next, baptism symbolically unites you to new life in Jesus. You go down, you go down under the water, but you don't stay there, thankfully. <laughs> You don't stay there. You're immersed, and then you come up out of the water. And Paul says, verse 4, Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Baptism is the inaugurating symbol where you declare to the world, because of Jesus and what he did for me, I now live a brand new life. I live a different life. I live a changed life. This is the third characteristic that Paul highlights, is that a Christian is someone who lives a new life in Christ. Jesus came up from the grave. You come up out of the water. And what this represents is that when you become a Christian, you start a new life. You begin a new life. That means you have new values. You have new priorities. You have new affections. You have new motives. You have a new mission. God gives you a new purpose and trajectory and joy. God gives you new desires. He gives you strength to live a different life. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Does Paul mean this literally? No, because he couldn't write this then. Paul wasn't resurrected like Jesus. He wasn't literally crucified. He's talking about this same concept. I live a new life in Christ. My old life is over. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. What Paul's getting at is that God's grace does more It does more than just set you free from sin's claim and penalty. It does that, which is unbelievable. He spent the better part of an entire chapter explaining that, but it actually does more than that. God's grace does more than justify. It also sanctifies. That's the idea. It changes you now. So you're going to be in glory forever, perfect body in paradise with him. No temptation to sin, no pain, no death, no fear. You're going to be changed on that day. But he says you're also changed now. The moment you're born again, your old life is over. You begin a brand new life. The gospel makes you different. All at once, positionally before God and over time, in your character, your behavior, your attitudes, your thinking. Fourth characteristic of a Christian. A Christian is someone who is becoming more like Jesus all the time. That's the idea. That's what sanctification is. You're becoming more and more like your Savior. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you too Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to live to God? Paul explains it this way. We'll get, we'll get here in a couple weeks in verse 22. A little preview, a little teaser. He says, but now, 
Since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. So here's the idea. When you live through Christ, in faith, by the power of His Spirit, you become like Christ over time in your character. That's sanctification. And Paul's whole point here is that becoming like Jesus, by definition, is becoming less sinful. You can't be sanctified. You can't live a new life. You can't be becoming more and more like your Savior and move in the direction of sin. They're opposite directions. It's moving in the direction away from sin and its influence in your life. So we'll wrap up by circling back to our original question. How should Christians think about sin? I'm going to give you five principles. And we're going to get into this more next week, so this is, this is just a, a little preview. Five principles we're going to cover quickly, and then we're going to wrap up. So we're not going to go deep on these. First, a Christian should hate sin. A Christian should hate sin. First your own, and then where you see it in others. So you don't hate people who sin, because then that make you hate everyone, okay? But you hate sin itself. And what that means is that a Christian should not disregard sin. You shouldn't downplay sin. You shouldn't coddle your sin. You shouldn't wink at it. Just kind of get, how close can I get to sinning without sinning? shouldn't do that. shouldn't flirt with it. You shouldn't cult, cultivate a love for things that expose you to temptation. Now, this is like a whole series of sermons because we're all wired a little bit differently. We all have different proclivities. We all have different weaknesses. And so this requires wisdom. It says in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for it is the source of life. And so you need to figure out in your life, what does that mean? What, what are the temptations that you need, to, you need to build walls around your heart and say, I can't come near this thing? Some people, I don't want to use specific examples. You, you got to hate sin. You have to hate it. Don't flirt with it. Don't wink at it. Second principle, a Christian should expect to struggle against sin. So you are positionally righteous and innocent before God in Christ. You are eternally forgiven in Christ. You have a new nature in Christ. The eternal consequences for your sin are void. God has accepted you already in Jesus. But that doesn't mean you are automatically, practically righteous right now. You see the difference? You are positionally righteous. Sin has no claim on you. The wrath of God has been diverted onto Jesus. There's no fear of death for the Christian, but that doesn't mean you will live righteously today. Those are two different things. So you still have to fight. You still have to struggle. You still have the remnants of a sinful nature in your flesh now. And the, the temporary consequences of sin are still real. So just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you can't badly hurt people with your sin. Doesn't mean you can't really mess your life up with your sin. So you should expect this will be a struggle. Third principle, a Christian should resolve to fight. You got to resolve to fight. In, in your mind, 
you have to know and you have to realize and you have to operate thinking, this is going to be a fight for the rest of my life. And I can win. I have the power of the Holy Spirit. Jonathan Owen was a 15th century Puritan theologian. He famously wrote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And I think that's true. You must resolve to fight. Again, we could do a whole sermon series on this, but I want to encourage you. This is going to mean ongoing confession. You need to humble yourself and admit, hey, I have failed here. First, before the Lord, to yourself. I'm not perfect. Like, I really screwed up here. Sometimes you might need to confess that to other people, either for the sake of accountability or for the sake of your relationship. Ongoing confession is a part of fighting against sin. Ongoing repentance. So you don't just acknowledge it, you actually turn away from it. Correct course, change your behavior when necessary. How else can you fight? One verse, passage that came to mind this week, I've been studying Psalm 119. Psalm 119 verse 9 through 15 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping your word. I have sought you with all my heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. He's talking about how can I fight against sin? How can you fight against sin? He says, keep God's word. Now he goes on. This is really helpful. Verse 11. I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. I have treasured your word in my heart. If you want to fight against sin, treasure God's word. A lot of people think this means memorizing God's word. Of course, it does mean that. Hiding God's word in your heart. But treasuring God's word is way more than memorization. If you're going to memorize, first you have to read. (laughs) If that memorization is going to do you any good, you need to know what it means. You need to meditate on those truths. You need to think about how does this apply to my life. It's all of that. Treasure God's word. How else can you fight? Commit to self-discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says like, hey, the Christian life, it's like a competition. Now, it's not in one sense, but he, he says, it's like, he says, don't you know, in the Olympic games, in a stadium, all the, all the runners, they're all running a race, but only one gets the prize. So he says, I run in such a way as to win the prize. And then he says, I beat my body and I bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And what, he, what he's getting at is, if you're a runner in a race and your goal is to win, you have to train. You have to eat right. You have to sleep well. You have to actually go run. You have to make it hurt. That's how you get better. That's how you get faster. That's how you grow your endurance. And he's talking about sanctification. If you want to win the fight against sin, it's going to require hard work. Now, you need God's word and you need God's spirit. You can't do it on your own. But you need to try. You need to discipline yourself. This is part of the package. How else can you fight? Commit to loving others. Commit to loving others. Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He said the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And loving people sacrificially the way Jesus did is so often the antidote to selfishness. It's the antidote to bitterness or laziness. When you say, God, because you have loved me, I will love him or her. It just neutralizes all of your sinful inclinations. You say, in faith, I'm going to serve this person. In faith, I'm going to be kind to this person. In faith, I'm going to try to be friends with this person. And you pour yourself out. 
you will find that you have power over sin. Lastly, a Christian should rejoice in their freedom. We don't ever want to get to a place where we're overwhelmed by guilt or shame. We, we, we rejoice by enduring in the fight, but never without God's fatherly love and care, never without the hope of the freedom from sin. So you messed up today, guess what? You're free in Christ. You're free in eternity, and He will give you power to be free tomorrow. And we rejoice in that. And finally, a Christian should aim at becoming more like Jesus. And we'll talk more about that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank You for just this incredible reality that we are free from sin. Why would we want to live in sin? God, we, sin has no claim on us. We can be free from all of its devastating consequences, not only in eternity, but now. We can walk in purity, righteousness, love, unity, selflessness, joy, peace, security. All of those things are the fruit of your Spirit. And they're all robbed of us. They're taken from us, stolen away when we give ourselves over to sin. So God, I pray you'd help us to be a church full of Christians who are secure, rooted in our identity in Christ. God, that we wage war against our sinful desires. We say, no way, I'm not going to live that way. Because I know that God has something so much better, so much sweeter for me than this world. So God, thank you. Thank you for this gift. Thank you for this revelation. God, help us to walk in it this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.